here's where we've been. We've been doing all of this series on salvation. Tonight we're going to wrap it up. We've gone through so many different aspects of salvation that tonight all I'm going to do is try to answer the remaining questions that are left open that people have been asking. And yes, I've gotten a few more on cards even as we went through the series, but we've covered everything from justification, regeneration, conversion, adoption, sanctification, the big questions about can we lose our salvation, can we know we're saved. Last week we talked about election and God's choosing and foreknowledge and probably a talk that I almost regret it was so difficult to understand. Uh, and if you think it was tough for you to sit through, I had to read those books. So tonight we're just going to answer some questions and end on a high note. We're going to talk about what it might be like to be with the Lord uh, as our closing point tonight, something that I think will encourage us. I left off last week by talking about the thief on the cross, and this is the point I want to pick up from. I said at the end of last week, did the thief on the cross understand any of these things about salvation? Uh, did the thief on the cross really understand the difference between like sanctification and justification? Did he understand that he was being adopted at that moment? And I think all of us know the answer is probably no. Did that make his salvation any less effective? Did it make it any less marvelous? Did it make it any less miraculous? No. But here's what I want to point out to us. The thief on the cross is kind of an exception because he found Christ in the last moments of his life. He happened to be being crucified right next to him. Many of us hide in what I call the thief on the cross exception. We kind of think, hey, if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. And the difference is we actually have a whole life of discipleship ahead of us. And there's a whole bunch more to salvation than just what he got to glimpse. We might say that while this is marvelous and miraculous, he might be the poorer for only knowing Jesus in that way for a few moments. And while his end is glorious and it's great, we have this great opportunity for the life that God created. He didn't create us all to just be placed on the cross with two minutes on the clock to find Jesus. He actually intended a plan that includes us living a life here for some reason, and we need to discover that. What I'm trying to say is the plan of salvation, we've tended to look at it and say, you're making it a little bit complicated. Maybe the better word is intricate and beautiful, and there's so much more to it. So I just want to point out from picking up from last week, let's not just stay there. I don't know that people in this room do that, but I think that a lot of our versions of Christianity tend to do that sometimes. We tend to want to kind of just stay here, get people into justification and say, you know what, everything else, optional. And I don't know if that's true. I think Morgan did a good job of explaining in sanctification why that's not true. We need to keep that in mind. All right, just as a kickoff for us, let's answer some of your questions that were on the cards. Oh, and there's the answer meter so that <laughs> you know where we are. I'm trying to be kind to all the people who just can't take it, you know, so you can, you can see where we are percent completed. The one that we started this whole series with was why, why is salvation so complicated? Can't we just follow the teachings of Jesus and the commandments and allow that to impact our lives? And what I want to point out is, I don't think those two things have anything to do with each other in some way. Yes, we should follow the teachings of Jesus and allow him to impact our lives, and we should be impacting the lives of others. But that doesn't make salvation less complicated just because we should be following Jesus' teachings. In fact, as we've been pointing out, careful reading of the scriptures is actually what leads us to a more complex understanding of salvation. It's what takes us from being babes who are just born in justification uh, to ones who actually are maturing in Christ. And part of that maturity is understanding what it is that we're doing through. Let me give you a quick reasons why I think we did this series to begin with. 
I think that when we actually have a better appreciation of salvation, we can deal with the intricacies of it in Scripture. You're going to come across verses that are going to seem strange. They're going to sound strange compared to the short formulas that we use for salvation in our churches. We should be able to understand them and not have them hurt us or surprise us. We can help others to understand salvation. People will have questions. They surely do. I read the questions that people have about Christianity. They'll point to a single verse and say, well, what do you think about this? And most of us, frankly, don't really have much of an answer sometimes. It does mature us as disciples to see God's intricate plan. And I think it really, the whole purpose is to appreciate the wonder of God, to see that he who is centrally focused on this issue of salvation for us in his creation. God's plan of creation is very much focused on salvation. It gives us an appreciation of who God is. So, yes, we can always hide under the thief on the cross exception, but I think there's real reason to know more and I would say on the top of my list is probably being able to read the scriptures without falling apart when we read something we don't understand about salvation, causing it to question what we really believe. Next question is, how much of the conditions of salvation are man or church-made rules? And I can easily dispense with this. I think the thing behind this question is a lot of times we think, oh, this is just church stuff, or this is just... I actually think that what the church has done is dumbed it down, not added so I can easily say that if you look at the complexity of what people are arguing about, they're all arguing from Scripture. They're all just putting one verse against the other. They're not just making stuff up. They're not trying to make church rules that make things more complicated. They actually wish it was simple. But when you look at all the verses, most of the people who debate this are just looking and saying, well, what do we make of this verse? And it's the verses that make it sometimes complicated for us. So I actually think we've tended to try to look for, as we saw a couple weeks ago, bumper stickers. Make it easier, make it more palatable, and that actually gets us more into trouble than to think that somewhere out there are these theologically-minded authors who are just creating a bunch of things, or churches just want to make it more complicated. If churches had their druthers, John 3.16 would be it, that would be over. All of us would like it that way. It's just not that simple. There's just more to it. I don't, say, I don't want to say it's not that simple. There is just more to it. There's just more that comes after the John 3.16 kind of view of it. Here are all the questions we've already answered, so I don't have to go through them. Can you lose your salvation? Is there a way to know that you're saved? If few people make it to heaven, how do we know if we're saved? What about the warning passages in Hebrews? Can we lose our salvation? Is there any legitimate end to this debate about security versus losing salvation? And is it just one of the mysteries of God? We covered all of that, so I'm not going to rehash it for you. I'm just going to tell you to go back eventually to the ones we've done on this because that's why we laid all the groundwork. Some of you are wondering, why are we talking about this? Because you asked. There it is. And I think it's important that if you ask, you know the answer. I don't, think it, I don't want to skirt them. Those are very good questions. They're at the heart of what it really most people want to know. The last question on the screen was, faith or works, in what proportion? What's the simplest way to explain this? I think I'll just give you a quick answer on that because we did kind of cover it when we looked at James and how James saw that justification came through works. I want to remind you that we at least said his use of the word justification is a little bit different, so we just have to be careful. I don't think scripture contradicts itself on this point at all. I think we need to see that works is evidence of faith. I think that's what we've kind of said. I'll just read you two verses, let the Bible speak for itself. Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10, it says it's by grace that we've been saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork. 
However, it also says that we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance to do. So think about the advance. He's destined us to do good works. So we are to do good works, but of course, it's not by works that we're saved. In fact, we could say it the other way. You're saved so that you can do good works. And actually, Titus 3 says that. In Titus 3, verse 5, we're told it's not by works that we're saved, but it also says, but having been saved, in verse 8, we're to devote ourselves to doing what's good. So the answer there is, I don't think we ever should let go of works. I don't think it's really a dichotomy the way it's always presented, faith or works. It's really faith and works, and some people would say in that order. And maybe that's a shorthand way. Maybe I'm dumbing it down because it's a little bit more complex than that. But I think that we really should not err on thinking that we're going to just pick one. I don't like the word or in that. Here's some other questions you asked. Are there levels of salvation? Are there steps that need to be taken to better understand the fullness of salvation? Is it an event or a process? What is the proper understanding of belief? And is there something you should always feel if you're saved to confirm salvation? Really briefly, the whole reason that I put up those questions about is it a process or is it an event, are there steps, is because we looked at the whole order of salvation. Different views have different orders, but everybody sees it. There's a process to salvation. And when we think of it as a one-time thing, an event, we're talking about justification. We're talking about when did you receive the Lord, and that's the beginning. And there are a lot of things going on, as we saw, of the activity of the Lord that are going on way before maybe even that moment. But that's why we spent time looking at the order of salvation, all the different things that might be involved, to get past the idea that salvation is just limited to justification or just limited to putting your faith in Jesus Christ. That salvation means a lot of things, and that's where we get ourselves confused sometimes. What is the proper understanding of belief? I heard Morgan one time say it, and I want to be very clear because maybe it wasn't heard. You know, in the, in the New Testament, belief and faith are sometimes used interchangeably. What we're looking for is faith and belief, putting our trust in Christ Jesus. I don't think it's enough to just know who Jesus is. We know that from Scripture. We, we even know, like even the demons know. So knowledge, maybe even knowledge and understanding of who he is might not be enough, but knowledge and understanding, appreciation of who he is, and putting our trust, our whole life in him is the best formulation that we have in the New Testament. Yes? So how much doubt are you allowed in that belief? A lot of doubt, like a little bit of belief, and like still be a believer? See, I think that's a great question because we tend to think of doubt and belief as opposites of one another, or often we think of doubt and faith as opposites of one another, only because we're thinking of that intellectual pursuit of how much do I believe this versus how much do I doubt it. If you think of faith as literally putting your whole trust in Christ, it still leaves room for us to have those times when we doubt, when we are open to not understanding things, when we're confused by things. And that's a different thing when you are looking at how it is that you live. So you might be able to say, I trust you fully. I put my life in yours. I just don't get these things or I have my doubts about how this works. Many people will cite the verse that says, like, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful to respond to something like that. And when we looked at that debate, we saw that some people would say, yeah, you could get to a pretty far level of doubt. Uh, and that's probably fine because we all go through those places. Anyone want to jump in on that? Yeah, Carissa. Um, I'm just wondering if maybe we should also think of faith 
um, as like an action because sometimes made of belief can be um, reduced to this like cognitive um, thing whereas what if we were to think of it more as like an action where even if it is something that's cognitive still you're saying and acknowledging like I am going to choose to act um, on that this is true about God yeah yeah, I think we say that sometimes about love, right, in the same way. Like, we want to reduce it to an emotion or a thought or a feeling, but I think there really is a commitment that we make to say, I fully put my life in you, to the point that if this was not, if you were not there, my life would make zero sense. I wouldn't even know how to live it anymore. Uh, I think that's important, but all I would say that anyone who's going to respond to that honestly would say they've been through moments of doubt, sometimes severe issues of doubt and even when you study and spend more time learning about the Lord because you're at the edge of your knowledge you will you will face moments where you just feel so inadequate to understand that it will lead you to places of doubt where you think can this really be true I guess my question is more like because that's obviously coming from like the standpoint of lots of belief and then encountering doubt as a path as opposed to like starting with doubt and then encountering a little bit of belief if like if that makes sense the only thing I would say, the only thing I'm going to say to you back to you is I'm, people will take different positions about it because some people say that it's God who's causing that belief in you, allowing that belief to take place. Uh, but I, I think the most honest prayer is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That sounds like a beginning prayer, right? Like to even pray, help my unbelief and Lord, I believe, sounds to me like the, the second way that you described it, which is like, I'm trying. I want this. I, I, I'm, I'm doing what I can. I'm giving you all the belief I currently have. Help that grow. Help my trust in you to grow. Help it to go further. But even to pray that or to say that means that you've come to at least a point where you believe this is true and I want in on it. Not just like I assent to it, but I really, my life needs to be about this. And I'm putting my trust there. And I think that can start with a smaller amount. We see it in scripture. Right? I want to believe. Help my unbelief. Okay? Come back. Um, I can't remember if we've talked about conversion or not, but I was just wondering how does um, how does that factor in? Like, do we say conversion is the same thing as justification, like it's a one-time thing? Or I've also heard people talk about, like, we're maybe in a process of conversion, of converting all of our life and giving all to God. Yeah, that's a new formulation, the idea that we'll slowly convert over time. Most traditional views are conversion is a part of justification. So the only debate there is who regenerates your heart? Is your heart first regenerated by God so that you can respond in faith, meaning conversion and repentance? Or does your act of saying, I believe, cause your heart to be regenerated so that you convert and repent? But in either case, all traditional views kind of believe that conversion is that new birth is part of regeneration or it's your response to it it's your response to regeneration and it's a one-time thing you put your faith in Christ I know that recently we've started to talk more about it being a journey and slowly and all that kind of stuff uh, that's newer theology I think that's trying to accommodate different thinking about the subject and I wouldn't say it's wrong it's just that it's not really uh, it's hard to find that scripturally that I've seen, right? And I'm looking at a wide spectrum from anybody from a Calvinist to a Molinist to somebody who's an Arminian, they would say that conversion happens at a, at a moment and it's part of justification. 
and it's a it's a it's a past act in the life of the believer. Yeah. Can that happen post death? Can it happen post death? I would say the vast, 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 vast majority say no. But in a in a position of humility, some would say they would make a high-minded statement like this. Faith in Christ during your lifetime is the normative way that people attain salvation, but God is free to do whatever he wants. What that means is we have no idea. The scriptures don't affirm it, but God can do whatever he wants. So if you're going to leave the door open, you would say that's certainly not the way he's told us he will act. But if that's going to happen, it's something that we've not been told. That's why most people say something important like that, he probably would have told us. So I'd say a vast majority believe no. And there are some people who hold out hope and say, we just don't know. Is there something you should always feel if you're saved to confirm salvation? You know, I want to be clear about this because we wrestled in here about can you know you're saved? And I said that a Calvinist would say you really can never really know because you have to persevere to the end of your life. And you just don't really know. You might feel like you're saved. You might be fake saved uh, and have all those things. Whereas an Armenian kind of would say, no, you can know because if you believe, that's enough. Because you couldn't have believed anyway. So let me just put up a couple answers for you. If you have a saving faith in Jesus Christ, almost every Christian would agree, then that's a great indication that you're saved. Calvinists would say, of course, because you couldn't have been saved, God would not have regenerated your heart to even respond to him. So the fact that you believe in Jesus Christ, very good evidence that you're saved. You just can't be sure until you live out your whole life would be the truest answer if you listen to somebody who's strong Calvinist. Arminians would say the same thing. I mean, hey, if faith is a condition of salvation, if you believe, you're in. Just don't lose it. Just don't give up that belief because it'll take it away. But all would agree that if you sit here today and say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and I believe I put my life and trust in him, then that's great evidence that you're saved. Some Christians would add these. And I say some, not all. Some people hate adding the ones I'm about to add. Some people say that the way you know is you look at what the Spirit is doing in your life. This is the way you know if you're really saved. You ask yourself questions like these. These are the ones that I asked myself and then was scared enough to think about calling Morgan now ask him if I was really saved. Do you sense the spirit bearing witness to your salvation? Do you sense that inside of you? Do you manifest the fruit of the spirit in your life? Because if the spirit doesn't dwell you, there'd be no fruit of the spirit. And the spirit wouldn't indwell you if you weren't a believer. So somebody would say, do you see the fruit of the spirit manifesting, evident to others, growing over time in your life? Uh, some of you need to know what the fruit of the spirit are and look them up. Do our ministries build up others in the church? Or do our efforts in the church actually seek to tear people down or discourage the church or discourage others? Do we believe the essential teachings of the church? Are we tempted to constantly look for new formulations or things that kind of appeal to what we'd like things to be and actually kind of rebel against many of the essential teachings of the church? Uh, I see a lot of this going on, by the way. I don't know if it has anything to do with salvation. I just think our minds think this way in our time. Do we have a desire for a relationship with Jesus? I mean, do you actually desire it? Is it just a guilt thing or something you should do or something you really, really long to have? Because if the Spirit is inside of you glorifying Christ, there should be some way that we long for this. Do we evidence strong obedience to God's commands? You can see why when I read this list, I thought, I don't know. 
Like, there's some of these that I just don't know that I feel or manifest every day or even close or sometimes years go by and I'm wondering, are these really descriptive of the way I feel and in a strong sense? That's why some people would say, no, your belief in the Lord Jesus Christ is your evidence to the degree that you can have it. But others would say, no, you really should see the Spirit at work in you if the Spirit resides in you. If you're a believer, the Spirit's there doing these kinds of things. Go back to our series on the Holy Spirit. Also, is there a long-term pattern of growth in your Christian life? What do I mean by growth? Look at 2 Peter 1, 5 to 11. I'm just going to read this to you. Make every effort to add to your faith. What do we add to our faith? What does he say we should add? Goodness. And to goodness, knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control. And to self-control, perseverance. And to perseverance, godliness. And to godliness, mutual affection. And to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, growing amounts, they will, be, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. If you just heard that saying, this will help you grow, this will help you remember what Christ has done, you could think, well, this is talking about sanctification maybe. And that's what a lot of people say. That's why they critique this. They say, what this is really encouraging us to do is to be born again and then to grow in sanctification, becoming ever more like Jesus. But Second Peter adds, it says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Make every effort to confirm that you've been called and chosen by God. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. And you will receive a rich welcome in the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why some people say if you have these things, and if you evidence these things, and you're actually following the biblical command to kind of grow and increasing them, that's good evidence that you can say to yourself, yes, salvation resides in me. Uh, I would say that probably enough people quibble with some of these that I think a good indication that I would use for us is the fact that the people in this room do believe that, that they are saved in Christ. I think that's probably, I would probably stick to number one, but I want you to be aware that there's others that feel like, no, there's other ways to know. Here are some questions that we didn't answer and I don't think we're going to answer. How does Jesus' death actually take care of sin? Why does God require sacrifice for reconciliation? Um, the other related question is, did something literally happen physically or metaphysically when Christ died, or was it symbolic? Chris and I were talking a while back about, there are so many different theories of the atonement. What does Christ's sacrifice actually do? Was it substitutionary? Was it just an example? Was there something else going on? We just didn't have time to talk about all the theories of the atonement. You'll be very glad, because they go on forever and I actually do support substitutionary atonement for anybody who's even wants to know what that is. I'll recommend some resources to look at it. I think there's a lot of arguments that other versions of the atonement, other theories of it are just as good to augment that. Um, but we just didn't have time to go through like what is actually going on and what does it mean? It is something beautiful to consider. It does bring you to an appreciation of what the crucifixion and the resurrection were really about. Uh, we just have limited time. This question said, in scripture, there seems to be a description of salvation that have eternal implications and others that refers to deliverance from specific situations. How do we know the difference? The context. The context is how you know the difference. Every verse we were dealing with dealt with 
salvation in what we would say is a salvific sense and really in the eternal consequence sense, not in the just save me from my circumstances, which is also all over scripture. Save me from what's going on. Deliver me, we might say, is a word that we're more comfortable with. Uh, you just have to look at the context. You know, there are times, some people like to say these passages are not about salvation. Uh, the ones that we picked were. Uh, the other ones, I think there are times, of course, where God does deliver us from our now circumstances. Uh, we're not covering those in this series, but there is a way to tell just by reading the context. There goes that meter. Can those who have ever heard the name Jesus still be saved? If salvation is through faith, relationship with Jesus, what about all the people before Jesus' time on earth? Uh, I think it's worth pausing on this one just for a second. I've heard this question from you too, not just on the cards. I was thinking about it this week because of the school massacre that took place just a couple days ago when five and six-year-olds were gunned down and everybody in a moment like that has to be thinking, what about children and infants who don't know or could not know or did not have time to know? What about all the people in the rest of the world right now who the gospel has not reached? It has not reached them in their own language who could not understand it or contemplate it. What does that mean? There are, of course, whole books written on this, and I'm going to try to summarize it very simply. The summary answer is we don't know. And here's the temptation. We like to make up our own theologies because we don't know and they're emotional subjects. For example, we've said in this room that Calvinists believe that God elected people to salvation ahead of time and he chose them. When you ask a Calvinist what about infants, all their theology gets really fuzzy. They start saying, well, God elected certain infants and not others, which is even harder to deal with. Or some will say that God knew what they were going to do, which is really strange because they're the ones that say, you're not supposed to base it on what we do or not do, it's just choosing. But when you get to kids, somehow God knew what they would do when they grew up, and that's how he chose, which violates a lot of what they would say about foreknowledge. Some people just say every kid goes to heaven, and every person who hasn't heard, every person who's never heard the gospel goes to heaven. Uh, there are people who just say, you know what, that's just the way it is. If you don't have belief in Jesus Christ, you're not going. And if you didn't have it, you didn't go. And the weird thing is, those are not the Calvinists who end up saying that. It's sometimes the people that we favor, the people who get to freely choose Jesus, who say, well, if, if salvation is conditioned on faith and you don't have faith, then you can't go. That's why I say the answer is, nobody knows. But in difficult circumstances, people start to want to bend things to make sense to us. I felt the same temptation as I was reading the stuff I was reading. There are views that just say this, this I like this one, this made sense to me, you could put it on a bumper sticker. People who reject God cannot go to heaven. People who cannot even have a choice get to go. People just like to say that. Like if a kid doesn't know, if somebody doesn't have the mental capacity to make the decision, if somebody has never even heard, then they can't be held guilty. We like that somehow, right? That seems fair to us. But if you read the scriptures, there is nothing in there that ever says that. In fact, it says just the opposite. Read Romans. It says they have no excuse. 
because they've known since the creation of the world who God is. And his invisible qualities have been made visible to them through nature and creation. They should just figure it out. And we think, I don't like that. So how do we resolve a subject like this and these questions, which we hear from people who don't believe and from people who believe, frankly? How do you address it? You have to be humble. You have to say, you know what? We cannot know. Being humble means not just throwing up your hand saying, I don't know. You could say, well, there are different ways to look at it. But one thing we should stay away from as Christians, as believers, is to formulate our own thoughts and then imply them upon God and say, this is what it must be. Because the scriptures actually say things we probably don't like in this area to the degree they say anything at all. Yes? I can't remember if it was Martin Galley, but it was somebody at Christian Today a few months ago. I actually read an article on that. And he essentially concluded the same thing on simply we can't know, uh, but what we need to do is trust in the character of God. And so we, we can still speak to who God is. Again, saying we can't know this because we don't. But, but I would trust this person to, to choose rightly, to, to judge that situation, take care of them now. It's still going to piss off a lot of people because you can't give them, is my kid in heaven or not, or, you know, those type of right angle answers. But I think that's, that's the truest thing we can say. Yeah, my temptation is to say, you know, any kid that dies who does not have the capacity to accept Jesus Christ, it's unfair to say that they get to lose salvation and the alternative, be punished forever or whatever duration hell will be because they could not accept Christ. My temptation is to say Jesus loves children. They don't know. They couldn't accept him. They didn't have the chance to accept him. How are they to know if no one has preached to them? All those kinds of verses. And then somebody else would say, yes, but you are forgetting that all are born sinful. All are tainted with Adam's sin. None are pure. You are ascribing purity to a child that is your own human vision of purity, but it really does not comport with the fact that we're all sinful. I hate that. When I hear that argument, I just resist it with my whole being, especially being the father of an almost three-year-old. Right? Like, I can't conceive of it. That's why I think in humility we say we don't know, and I like your addition, which is we, we just trust in the character of God. And I would definitely recommend, by the way, that we would never have this conversation with anybody who's gone through this. You know, like the last thing we're going to do is they say, like, what do I do now? Like, where's my child? I go, well, it's <laughs> 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 not the time uh, in anything, whether even our discussion that we did, or we did a whole series on suffering and evil. Like, there are times when it's good to, to discuss those things. That's when everything is calm and relatively good so we can prepare ourselves for who God is and to trust him through those circumstances. It's not when people have just lost someone. That's probably not the time to have this discussion. Jess. Did you run any, into anything, or do you know if there's scriptural backing for prevenient grace? There are arguments that use it. Yes, there are people who, that's their, that's their view. That's how you get children to have. But in fairness, there are some people that will say, look, Jesus likened to the kingdom of heaven to like children, right? So he must be thinking of them in that way. Okay, some people say, no, he's making a comparison. Right? That doesn't mean that all children are going to heaven just because he said, like, you know, the, the kingdom is for these. Right? Uh, he wasn't saying we should all become little babies. He was actually making a, an illustration. Yeah, they're all over the map. And I will tell you that it's the one place where all the people who are okay choosing and not choosing, and all the people who had all these great theologies, all of it breaks down when you deal with little kids. It's just too hard to just say it with a straight face. 
Because the, like the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a Calvinistic view, Presbyterians follow it, says that elect infants, when they die, will be taken to heaven. But that doesn't answer the question of who's elect. Like, so that doesn't give us any clue. That's the most succinct statement they have. They couldn't answer other than to say that elect infants, when they die, will be going straight to heaven. Okay, but you didn't tell us who was elect. How, how do you get elect? So it literally means the same way everybody else does. God has chosen even the infants. They're going to die and go to heaven. He's chosen them, and the others are not going. And we all start weeping. <laughs> we think, like, that's not the God I want. Right? That's just a view. But enough of them say, no, that can't be, that you can say, well, then how's your theology holding up elsewhere? That's strange that you would all of a sudden back down when we did it, dealt with babies. Uh, and the same is true of people who haven't heard. I mean, even though we have in Romans, is like, how can they say they haven't heard? You know, we have this general revelation that should be enough for everyone to know, and they might be judged according to a slightly different standard. Uh, it's still difficult to think about. And that's why so many people favor, I would say, if you ask the vast majority what they would like and what they just kind of end up with, they say, people who just have no opportunity to accept Christ are not going to be judged for that. His work on the cross is still sufficient to cover even for people who could not accept him. That sounds great. Even though I, I believe that. <laughs> you know, like, I want that to be true. Uh, I, that's where I, I land. Uh, but maybe, like Morgan said, because I trust in God's character more than I could see a verse that tells me that. Okay? Anything else? Comments? Yes? Uh, just a little comment. Like, there's a lot of studies out there about kids and um, that show, like, most kids, they just immediately think that, hey, there's a God. Like, you know, so I'm just wondering, like, that's something, but if they don't say the name Jesus, like, or if they, if they haven't heard the name Jesus, I just wonder how much that factors in. Like, let's say they do believe in God, but they don't, they haven't heard Jesus. I mean, I just wonder how that would factor in. I think there's room for that because there is a whole line of people who believe that if you follow the general revelation trend, there's two views when you talk about Romans and what God's nature is like in the world and how visible it is. They'll say that if you followed God's commands to the degree you understood them because there was general revelation that there was a God and you never heard the scriptures and you never heard the gospel message and you never know about Jesus, but general revelation would be enough for you to follow God and express that without saying Jesus or without saying those things. So for a kid, that would hold true if you believed in that view. Others say, look, there's just no way around it. Special revelation is what we really need to find salvation. You must not only see God and know that he exists, that's actually the clue that there's a light in the world. Right? It says in the scripture that they, 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 they saw the light, but they didn't love the light. They loved the darkness, and they turned their back onto the light. That's a bad paraphrase, but, 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 but that's kind of the concept, right? That was a totally good times translation there. So some would say general revelation is not enough. When they see the light, they should run towards it and figure out what it is. And if they don't, then there's no chance for salvation because they need the specific revelation of it. So it depends on where you are. In one, kids would be great. And I have seen those same articles, by the way, some that have come out recently that say kids attribute things to design and to a God from a very young age, and you almost have to talk them out of those views rather than like, teach them about those things because they kind of subscribe that. Okay? Same is true, same exact discussion for people who have not heard. Right? There are people who say, hey, general revelation is enough. They had a clue. And if they followed that, that's what God's going to judge them on because they had no opportunity to know more. Others say, nope. If you see the light, you must run towards it. Know who Christ is and believe in him. Yes? 
I'm having kind of a hard time with that one because it just sounds like really like an argument for like universalism or like, because we're always like, no, not all religions get you to God and like it has to be Jesus specific and all of that, which which I believe, but I've always kind of felt like this idea when I when I come past those verses in the Bible that are like, everyone just knows evident in nature as an explanation why to why there's so many different religions and like why, like I, I really do think that like people are sort of born with that feeling that there's something bigger and like you just know there's a God. And so since back in God, since the world began and even like to nations now or tribes that don't hear, it's like they're looking for that thing that created them. And so maybe their religion looks different because they know there's a God and they've never read the Bible. And so it became whatever that religion is in this indigenous population. But we reject that as Christians, right? We're always like, no, it's Jesus specific. So it just seems really conflicting now that we're talking about salvation when we're saying like, hey, general revelation might be good enough. But when we're talking about it in a different context, we're like, well, no, like, it's not just God by another name. Like, it has to be Christ. That is the number one critique that you just named of why the general revelation view is rejected. As much as it appeals to our nature of thinking that people who just don't know figure it out the way they figure it out, the critique is that sounds like universalism. Or they would say, in more accurate terms, that tends towards universalism. It leans toward, it's the opening to universalism, right? Now, not everything is a slippery slope, but that's exactly the argument. So you've, you've said it right. And that's why I would say probably more people say, nope, it's still special revelation. And like I said, the Arminian view, which is the one some of you like, which is that God makes the offer open to all, and you must accept Christ as, as a condition, then you say, right, you must accept Christ as a condition. And then they get all fuzzy when they talk about kids again. They're like, well, but for kids, it's like different, you know, because they didn't have a choice. Like, but you said it was a condition. That's your theology. Your theology is a condition. Why is it change when we talk about people who haven't heard or children? I'm not saying it shouldn't change. I'm saying, let me go back to the summary answer and move on. We don't know. <laughs> we have to appeal to the mystery of God. We don't know. Like, it's just not given to us in ways that we know. I mean, there are clues. People say like when David's son died, he says prophetically, like he cannot come to me, but I can go to him. Okay, that means, you know, I'm going to be with him in the next life because he died, right? Uh, it could also just mean that he's making a speech like he's not coming back from the dead. I mean, you know, some people say, no, he means it figuratively. Other people say, no, he's speaking prophetically. It goes on and on. In the end, the summary holds true. We don't know. I know we'd like to know, and the temptation I want to warn you against is always, whenever we get to a place we don't like, inventing something new that would work in the 21st century that would never fly in the scriptures. Here are some questions that make you think. I don't know that I'll answer them. And in fact, I probably can't. What about the fact that we're not on a level playing field when it comes to our understanding of salvation, especially with regard to our personal environmental differences? What about the fact that people are just born in different places, they're born in different levels? Uh, how does that impact salvation? Some people, like you know, we already would say, hey, doesn't matter. God already chose who God's going to choose. Other people who want you to find faith as a condition would say, that's all the more reason we should be evangelizing. That's all the more reason we need to reach people in every level and in every place. But the truth is, we're not on a level playing field. And only in maybe the 21st century, in the 20th century, would we be charging God with unfairness because we're not on a level playing field. That's relatively new in some way. But that's just the way it is. Uh, I will remind that maybe we're not on a level playing field because of generational sin. 
Like if your family chooses to start a new religion or to change what you already know about God from the beginning, go back, we all knew God from the beginning in the garden. If we choose to do that uh, and we choose to go a different way or if you choose to teach your kids not to believe in God or you choose to believe, you tell your kids to believe in a different God and their kids do that and their kids and their kids and their kids, you've created a whole line that uh, you've actually made it harder for people to find God. And I don't know that we just get to get off on responsibility for that. Maybe that's what the level playing field that we, some people are talking about in this question is. We're not on a level playing field. Yes, but that is in part due to a lot of human sinfulness. That we would not be open to God, that we prefer the darkness, and we would prefer our own religions or no religions. And I know plenty of parents who just teach their kids there's no God, it's silliness, it's stupid. You know, hey, people are quote unquote free to do whatever they want, but in one way they're harming their kids in ways that they could never appreciate. And even if it's not their kids, it's generations they might harm as a result. In contrast, we can have the same impact in a positive sense as we raise our children and our friends and our communities. Is there a geographical bias to salvation? If you live in the U.S. or even in North South America, you have a better chance of hearing about Jesus than if you lived in another part of the world. How does that relate to election? Um, you know what's interesting about this question? I'm not going to answer it from a high-minded view about election. I would say this question would only make sense in the last two or three hundred years. I mean, you know, do you think that if we had said that in the first century, like, hey, you guys have a geographical bias on salvation because Jesus was born here in Palestine. Like, nobody would, nobody would get that, right? That would just make, like, no sense, right? It just, that wouldn't be the kind of thing that would happen. Um, if, if you waited another 200 years and the center of all Christianity was in China and India and somewhere else that had moved, right? Like, that's where the center was. Would we say they have a geographical bias? I mean, God is working in history. Uh, so if there is a geographical bias, maybe it's because for a while he wanted kind of an entrepreneurial consumerist Christianity to kind of flourish, you know? And then later on he's going to want it to go back to an authentic one, you know? <laughs> but God is working in history, uh, and so I think the question is kind of temporal in nature. Yeah? I think it's also, it doesn't realize that it's Christianity, and I take this from Tim Keller, like Christianity is one of the few religions that its center has moved and still made it. It started in the Middle East, it went to the West. And now it's thriving in Africa. I mean, not to say it's not here as well, but I'm saying its center actually has moved a bunch of times mm -hmm. and has still flourished. Whereas, I mean, the Middle East is the hotbed for Islam. It's, it's not moving anywhere, right? And that's a quite interesting reality. Yeah, Christianity is going to the global south, right? Like, we're seeing a whole shift from the north and the west to, like, the south and the east, right? It's a whole shift that's going on. So there is a geographical bias. You, you know, you could say God is behind all things. That'd be one way to do it. A Calvinist would say God chooses or he chooses. Maybe that's the way he works through it. Um, a Calvinist would also say it's not up to you anyway. Like God's going to regenerate who's going to regenerate. So don't worry about where you're born. He'll reach you no matter what. Um, but if you take the Armenian view and say, you know, it's up to you to find uh, salvation. It's open to all and it's a condition. Yes, one more reason we should be evangelizing the world. Again, same thing. I mean, we should be working hard to bring the gospel to as many people as possible. Um, and we're the ones who are going to be the new mission field eventually. I mean, maybe maybe not in our lifetime, but we're the ones who are going to be living in a world that like, thinks Jesus is like some outdated idea. How do we move past a westernized understanding of salvation? For example, the Jesus prayer is very western style uh, for some, and does this have to do more with evangelism? It kind of does with the means of evangelism, but for sure we know that in the West, we have definitely tainted Christianity with an American brush. Uh, but culture always influences religion. That's not good, but it just happens. We've talked about that in previous series. I would just say that eventually maybe the Jesus prayer will disappear when Christianity here just becomes so weak that, you know, other forms of Christianity will be there. For example, 
You can see forms of Christianity where they emphasize the community or the mystery of God or just being included in it. And there's none of this like single moment, say this prayer and you know, you've got the antidote to the, to the illness kind of idea. That appeals to us because we're very consumer driven. So having a thing you can sell on late night television works. Uh, but in other parts of the world it will not work as well perhaps. And there'll be something different. So yes, there's a bias there. But the main point is, of course, this series has been way more than about the Jesus prayer. Right, which if anything would be about justification, if anything. Notice how many times we use the word salvation to mean one thing when it really means like a lot of things. Hey, look at that meter, we're almost done. How do you help a new believer know or experience assurance of Christ's presence in their life? Don't let them listen to this series. That's the way. <laughs> Keep them away from any of this, right? I say that jokingly, but in some respect, there is a beauty to the beginning of salvation. There is a beauty to being born again. There is a beauty to the, the fervor that comes with finding Christ. There is a beauty to all the stuff that happens, and you should never quench that. We should encourage it. But over time, we bring people to a mature understanding of what it is that, that they've been born into, right? Over time, uh, I think some of these things are helpful for the reasons I started with. What's the most basic formula for salvation? And is there a mandate to go any further? Uh, you know what? I think you could say there's a basic formulation for salvation. I know sometimes we've, we laugh at something as simple as John 3.16, but I think that's, that's something that's very, very easy to understand. It's very, very central to the gospel itself. Uh, you could look at the book of Acts, like believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know? I mean, that could be as simple as salvation is. But remember, when we're talking about salvation here, we're talking about being born again. We're talking about regeneration. We're talking about justification. And when the person says, is there any biblical mandate for doing anything further? And I kind of think, of course there is. Is that what we want? We just want people to just say, hey, I'm born again and that's the end of it? I mean, that goes back to Morgan's discussion about why sanctification throughout this lifetime is so important. And so I guess we come back to the question of, we kind of started the series with, if I didn't understand this stuff when I accepted Christ when I was four, does that make me less saved? I hope that's not where you stayed. I hope that if you found the Lord at four, that's awesome. I hope since then that you've grown. And the sad truth is for many of us, our understanding of salvation has not. We try to live the Christian life, but we don't really understand that it's, we're really working out our salvation. We're working out that all of discipleship and everything is really about us growing in sanctification. We talked about in last series, some of us are doing it totally on our own power because we don't know the Holy Spirit. That's part of salvation actually part of sanctification. Or we think that it's just enough to find a ticket to heaven and we ignore everything else. Or we just are living with a very, very, very watered down version of the life that we're supposed to have in salvation. So I don't think that's the way it's supposed to be at all. I don't think that's what we're looking for in any of these things. Final question, where can I get more answers? Of course, that wasn't a real question. I made that up. Here are all the books we read for this series. I will tell you what they are and I'll give you the top ones. Uh, I used Norm Geisler's Systematic Theology of Salvation. It's 450 pages of salvation, the, probably the most thorough work I've seen on it. Uh, if you're going to buy one book that would be really helpful, I would suggest Earl Rodmacher's Salvation. It's written very comprehensively, but it's written for uh, lay people to understand. Uh, it's got a lot of explanation of verses and a lot of very good thoughts. It's organized in chapters like what is justification? What is regeneration? What is conversion? Like it's organized in ways to help understand. But it goes into a lot of 
very interesting topics as well, and even cover something like what do we do about infants. Uh, one of my favorites, Salvation and Sovereignty by Kenneth Keithley, which takes the Molinist view, which I said I would like to express to you, but I just don't have time. It's a middle ground view that I really like between Calvinism and Arminianism, and I think it really solves a lot of issues very well for people who are troubled by both. Uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology of Salvation is probably the best systematic theology I've ever read because it's so understandable. Uh, but it's completely from a Calvinist perspective. So if you want to understand the Calvinist perspective, that's who you want to read. Uh, that's Wayne Grudem's Salvation, or Making Sense of Salvation. It's actually an excerpt from his larger work on systematic theology. It's just the salvation excerpt. It's very good reading. I mean, it's so understandable. And when you're done, if it wasn't for the fact that some people question whether this was you know, the right formulation, it's such a cohesive way to understand salvation. It's, it's helpful to read even if you don't agree with everything, because he deals with verses so beautifully. We also read uh, Eternal Security to understand if there is. There's four views on eternal security. Uh, we read four views on divine foreknowledge. And uh, previously, I'd read Chosen But Free from Norm Geisler and God and Time, which deals with views of God and time. That's how many books we use just to get through this series. I would say stick with Rademacher. Um, if you want the most comprehensive view of what everybody in the world thinks and counter arguments, that's Geisler. Uh, systematic theology, and I actually like Grudem's work, even though I don't totally agree with everything he says. I just like the way he laid it out. And my highest recommendation goes to Keith Lee's Salvation and Sovereignty, the Mullinist view that I really like. All right. Look, the meter's almost done. Can I give you something hopeful? A lot of times we never talk, when we talk about salvation, about what the end of our life will be like. I mean life with Christ. We've done a series on heaven. Recently, a new song, I preached three sermons on heaven uh, that'll be on the site soon so people can reference them. Whenever people talk about this, what they're talking about is the final step of salvation, which is called glorification. Paul says those who were justified will be glorified. So we just take a moment for a second and think about what does it mean to be glorified? The first thing it means is that we will have new and glorious and powerful and never perishing bodies. We'll be bodily resurrected, that's number one. On a new earth that will also, the whole creation will be remade. We'll be living on this, or a remade version of this earth, reclaimed from all the effect of sin. We'll be living actual physical lives and bodies. Listen to our series on heaven for all the people who think we're going to be singing all day or going to be souls floating around on clouds. It's not that way at all. It's going to be a physical existence that's going to be beautiful and last because our bodies do not perish. So people talk about the bodily resurrection. They talk about the recreation of the entire universe. They talk about the rewards that all believers are going to receive. And this is the part where all people from all different sides of the arguments come together and say, yes, the passages on rewards in Scripture are beautiful. The things that God is going to prepare for us to reign with him, to reign over the angels, to administer over one another, to have actual rewards in the new earth. All of these things are coming in glorification. But I think the one thing we should focus on the most is probably that we will get to be with God. Let me ask it to you this way. Do you ever struggle with loving God? Do you ever struggle with like actually having an emotional feeling where you just desire with all of who you are to be with God? Do you ever find that to be more of a chore, more of something you need to do than something that you just naturally can't get enough of? I mean. Maybe I could say it another way. Do you miss Jesus because you don't have him in your life? You know, I don't. 
A lot of us don't. A lot of us complain from a spiritual dryness that comes from the fact that we don't actually wake up in the morning and the first thought is, oh, I wish I was with Jesus. Now, there are people that report that, you know, and that's good. I, I, I never quite get it, and I just think they must be so much more advanced in sanctification than I am. And we're all at different levels, so I'm not going to denigrate that at all. I'm just going to say, bless them for getting to the point where the Spirit has regenerated their heart and moved them to a place and worked in them that they actually crave Jesus' presence every morning when they get up and every night when they go to bed. I'm not there. I think we would all say, though, that not desiring Christ in that way is sin. That's not what Christ intended. Christ did not intend for us to struggle to have to be with him. He intended our heart would long for him. We have all these descriptions in scripture, that, like as we are the church and he's the head, as we are the bride to the bridegroom, like all this language that would pull us to want to desire to be with God. And so here's something just to think about in glorification. God does not remove just the penalty of sin. That happened in justification. We were made righteous. He doesn't just remove the results of sin in our life. That was going on in sanctification, but it actually speeds up at glorification. He actually just removes sin from us entirely. There is no more sin. There is no more sorrow. There's no more death. There's no more suffering. And when there's no sin, I have to assume that since it's sin, not to want to crave and love Christ in that way, that the removal of that sin is going to just literally unleash all of the love that we have for God. Not just because we see him face to face, but because we're no longer hindered by the sin that causes our eyes to look elsewhere, that causes us to crave other things. Our heart will be holy for him in a great way. And I think that's good news for me in glorification because I feel guilty all the time longing to be there. Or maybe even not longing to be there, just guilty. And that's one of the beauties of glorification is to see God as he is. It says in Revelation 22 that we're going to get to see God, which is something that nobody has ever gotten to do. But now that we're free from the penalty of sin, we get to see God face to face, it says. We get to see him face to face. Many people ask to see the Lord. None were allowed to. We will be able to. And as I recently talked about Elsewhere, I think this is something to keep in mind. I want to read you this last passage. You know, what is it going to be like to see God in glory? We're going to be glorified. Our bodies will be imperishable. We'll be spending time worshiping him, spending time with him. You can read the descriptions of Revelation. The city of God doesn't need a light. He is the light. We're there. We're with him. We're on the new earth. We have this great life. No more sin. No more suffering. But there's one description that really caught me the most by surprise, and that's in Luke 12. Jesus is telling a parable to his disciples about the end and being ready for him to come back. And he says these words. He says, be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning. Like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they will immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Jesus is clearly telling a parable where he's the master. Watch, wait for me, keep your lamps burning. He's away for a long time. The, the servants don't know exactly when he's coming back, but he's saying, literally, like, stand at the window, keep the lamps burning, wait for me to come in. It would be good for you if you're expecting me, literally dressed for my return, ready, it says. Truly I tell you, he will dress himself to serve 
We'll have them recline at the table and we'll come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or towards daybreak. Listen to this line again in case you missed it. Truly I tell you, he, the master, will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. Jesus is telling his disciples that one of the beauties of waiting for me to return and being ready to come with me when I return is that I am going to take off my clothes and dress as a servant and wait on you. I am going to serve you. It's almost a remarkable twist that he would even put this in there because it's just so backwards to think of a God who not only is glorious and worthy of all worship, but who loves us so deeply and intimately that he describes his return for those who are ready for him as something where he will get to serve them. When we are together with the Lord in glory, not only will we have these beautiful lives and bodies and spend time face to face with the Lord, but one thing scripture gives us a clue to expect is that he will wait on us. If you think that's totally strange, think of the last act that Jesus had with the disciples before he went out to the crucifixion and the Last Supper, where he took off his clothes, wrapped himself in a towel, and began to wash the disciples' feet. And it was Peter who said, no, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus says, unless I do this, you will have no part of me, Peter. Imagine us in heaven with Jesus saying, do you want part of me? Then recline, lay back, it's time for me to serve you. It's almost a thought that you could say borders in our minds on a blasphemy, except for the words they come from Jesus himself giving this parable. We have no idea how great it's going to be in glory. The analogy that it came to me today I was thinking about was if I told you that you were going to move to a mansion on a paradise island that no eye could just imagine how beautiful this place was, but today you lived in a one-bedroom apartment. Would you be spending your time <laughs> remodeling that one-bedroom apartment? Would you be spending your time like trying to make it into something? Or would you just be getting ready for the time when you could move out of this thing so that you could find your place and what has been prepared for you? I don't think we get that sometimes. I know that I struggle with it because that is, the, that is what is awaiting for us in that aspect of salvation. What is waiting for every single person who's been justified is glorification, is being with the Lord forever in this place where yes, not only do we have his presence, but he may at times even wait on us to show us how much he loves us. Uh, maybe that will loosen our grip just a little bit on the life that we have here and help us to praise the Lord for the fact that we are saved and Show now, because of that salvation, our good work until the day comes when we'll inherit this unbelievable thing and leave behind this one-bedroom apartment. Okay, Let's pray and close up. Lord, I'm thankful for your allowance in giving us a place to meet, in giving us all of the discussion that has taken place here, in giving us the promptings of your Holy Spirit, who have caused us to work together, to work out our faith here in this room. I thank you for all the things and the tools that you've given us so that other people too will benefit from the thoughts and the conversations and even the struggles that we've had here. 
But all that, Lord, I lay aside tonight and just thank you for the gift of salvation, the fact that you have given us this, whether we understand it, whether we can grasp it. I do pray, Lord, that we look at the intricacy of it and praise you all the more for it. But the greatest thing is just that we can call you Lord, that we call you Master, that we call you God. And just being able to say those things we know must come from the Spirit. They must come from you as well, Father. And we thank you that we're able to utter those words because it means in our life that we have been justified, that we know you, that we're born again, that for however it happened, our heart receives you, and that we have to look forward now to the glory that is to come. Lord, strengthen us so that we do not give up on growing in maturity and growing in sanctification. Help us to partner with you and want it all the more until we find you in that glorious moment. Pray this in your name. Amen.